The problem the Bitcoin maximum was trying to solve is it's trying to get people to provide their human action to furthering Bitcoin. It's trying to discourage them from building things where their financial incentives would be greater to do that elsewhere. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using to buy Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for the people of the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase, but also not just that. You can also get 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar spent over 50000 annually. If you'd like to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions, all available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Yan, Brady, and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference alongside Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge, which I cannot wait to see as I am a gamer from the 80s. They are inviting all the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space, to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption, mining, and to lightning. Swan are also offering a massive 20% discount to this amazing event to listeners of my show, so just head over to pacificbitcoin.la and use the code PETER at the checkout. That is pacificbitcoin.la, P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la, and use the code PETER. Next up, we have Ledger. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, And with its larger screen, it makes it easier for you to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. Now, the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And you know what? I've been a customer of Ledger since 2017. I love my original Nano S and I now love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest way and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Also, today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against other people and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino really is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. So if you want to find out more, head over to BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is at bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. Please remember to gamble responsibly. Hello, Rizzo. Peter McCormick. How how are you? I'm well. You know, enjoying enjoying the bear market. Yay. Well, you predicted it. You're a cycle maximalist. 
I'm a Psycorn? Cycle maximus. Cycle. What does that mean? You told me you are cycle. Maximus. Oh, cycle maximus. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I gotta get I'm not cycling. <laughs> no, you <laughs> said like you're a cycle maximus mm -hmm. when we spoke previously, and you said it's gonna do the same shit again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, feeling feeling pretty good about that one. Huh? So you sold into it? I did not. No, <laughs> no I did not. <laughs> I thought uh, you were cycle maximus. Well, I think it's about <clears throat> mentally preparing, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I do still believe that Bitcoin is cyclical. So if we want to start on economic grounds, uh, I think that's a good one because I still think the Bitcoin cycle theory is intact based on my defining of it. Uh, I know that there's a lot of attack on that uh, these days, but uh, you know, I think that right now you can uh, economically coordinate around Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, uh, so there's this, you know, if you back up, there's this big <clears throat> trend in the space right now, right? Which is that every four years we're seeing, you know, these kind of big bubbles in the Bitcoin and wider crypto industry. And I still think one of the big unanswered questions is why is this occurring and why is this occurring with such regularity? So, you know, there's two ways to approach that question. Either you try to, you know, dismantle it and say that the question doesn't exist or you accept the question, right? So. I think we have to accept the frame. Do you accept that there has been four Bitcoin bubbles and do you accept that they have been four years apart? I accept that, yeah. Right. Okay, so then that's an interesting piece of data, right? So then it says uh, you as an individual have to say, do I think that this is going to happen again or do I think that it's not going to happen again? Um, you know, I like the cycle theory because it's, like many of the great things in the cryptocurrency space, it's like a very unhappy medium. It satisfies no one and everyone hates it like sort of equally for like different reasons. Sort of like Tether, right? It's a good example. Uh, you know, nobody <laughs> wants Bitcoin to be cyclical because that says that we have to go through another downturn. It says that we're like not the master of our domains to some extent. It means that we're subject to like the economic advancement of Bitcoin. Uh, and that there's very little that we can, as humans, can do to impact that, right? That's like one definition by which it's unfriendly. Uh, but Bitcoin cycles were a pretty big factor in me understanding or coming over to the Bitcoin maximalist camp, because as you know, I was a, as a journalist, right? Um, and trying to understand, okay, like what is happening here? What makes Bitcoin, why is Bitcoin successful? And the further I go back into the archives, right, the more that I dig into it, I think the only thing that really separates Bitcoin from the other digital cash projects before it is its economics. You know, and I've recently spent the last few months kind of digging into like the 1990s projects and so Hold on, hold on. Hmm? What separates it from its other projects? The other digital cash, like uh, the other digital cash attempts in the 1990s that were un unsuccessful. You have to include decentralization in that. Yeah, that is a factor as well. There's a couple, uh, so again, I recently just went through this whole period where I kind of dug through the 1990s digital cash projects archives myself, and I'd never really done the primary research of looking at that and kind of going through month by month, okay, what are they talking about in the cypherpunk mailing list? And I think there's really, two like leapfrogs there, right? So the first is that David Chom eventually in the 1980s figures out how to make digital cash work. Uh, he just does it with a patented process called blind signatures, right? So then flash forward to the 1990s, he's not released that project and he has tried to commercialize that project by selling it to banks. So they need a way to route around that. So then you get to essentially decentralization, right? Because you can't replicate Chom's solution so you uh, have to find some way to distribute the operations of it, essentially, or you'd violate his patent. And then once they figured that out, there was a series of attempts to try to make different digital caches. And then the problem that they kept running into is that essentially there was no reason for people to use it as money. Like there was no reason for early adopters to start using it. 
And this was actually true of eCash and DigiCash as well, right? So that you could have a digital dollar on the internet. Like David Chom created that in the 1990s. He offered that as a service. They created a shop as well, didn't they? Yeah, they had like a Missouri bank, like offered it. You could create an eCash account and like merchants could accept it. But there's no reason for that flywheel of adoption to start. So I don't know. I've just become convinced, increasingly convinced over the years that it's, and this is why, you know, I think my sympathies towards Bitcoin maximalism and economic and monetary Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin maximalism essentially starts there. It's that, yeah, really what we're talking about is the innovation of Bitcoin here is economic. It has nothing to do with like the particular component pieces like of its technology, which were previously around. It's that finally in Bitcoin, there is something that is released that people actually adopt, start using. And this is actually particularly something you really notice like before Bitcoin has a price. So there's this period in late 2009, like early 2010, where... Bitcoin is increasing in price, but there's no price. It's like a weird concept, but it's like it's increasingly clear that Bitcoin is more scarce and people are starting to price it. They're starting to offer goods and services in it. And they're starting to try to earn Bitcoin in increasing ways. And again, like Bitcoin still has no like the a Bitcoin is still worth like one dollar is worth like two hundred Bitcoin or something like that. Right. You're seeing like minuscule variations, and it's like there's still no exchanges. All of the economic scarcity and pressure is happening within a small component of like there's no exchange or like market to like um to metastasize that in right like there's no there's no market price but yet there is demand and scarcity and so you can see the impacts of demand and scarcity and like the monetary attributes of bitcoin working without the price or the cryptocurrency market and i think it's really interesting to kind of like divorce those two things and actually say even before there were exchanges like even before there was a bitcoin price you still had essentially the same dynamic, which was that this idea that Bitcoin was increasingly scarce, it was increasingly valued, and then people were like competing to acquire it. And then what was increasing was there a competition to acquire it. And that then metastasizes sort of in a dollar price and like an exchange and then that resources. But the actual behavior occurred first. And that's like, I think the really important part that a lot of the cryptocurrency general people missed, right? Bitcoin does have a unique start. Right. And do you think the increases in the price, that kind of hodl mentality, kind of forced and forced it into a place where people then started spending it because people started accumulating value. So they'll spend a bit, sell a bit off, but everyone else is still holding, so they've got value. And then you always get to a bit where you're like, well, I've got quite a bit of this. I've got enough now to spend a bit. Yeah, there's this interesting push-pull dynamic where you know people within the Bitcoin economy are always trying to move it forward, right? And the question is like, when do you personally? take responsibility to do that, right? Laszlo, you know, offering to buy pizzas for Bitcoin was essentially like, you know, he had been somewhat publicly shamed for acquiring too much Bitcoin and then he paid it forward, right? And then uh, essentially there was, uh, the economy developed, right? So I guess all this is to say is essentially it's like, to your question, it's like I still think the economics of Bitcoin are something that are really not well understood. I still think like the cryptocurrency, like the lens on the whole space like tends to gravitate towards technology, right? So even like we're talking about Bitcoin maximalism against other cryptocurrencies, really we're debating technology a lot. Um, but economics are important, right? And I think a key part of Bitcoin success was economics. And that leads me to be very sympathetic to the cycle theory of Bitcoin because, again, I think, you know, you have to accept that these factors that made Bitcoin successful like always occurred. They occurred in perpetuity as far back as like the earliest days of the project. And we're just seeing them at a different level now. Uh, but it gives me a lot of confidence that they actually occurred prior to that. You know, they were pre-existent. And so this cycle maximalism, does it give you the confidence then? Because sometimes you uh, 
you, you doubt things. Uh, I can't remember who were we were talking to the other day who said... It was yesterday. It was yesterday. Harry. Yeah. Harry, Harry Suddock. And he was like, well, when the price hit 3000 last time, I was like, mm, what if we're wrong? What if it just well, but doesn't I, yeah, work? Yeah, I think that that's the interesting thing and why I would say Bitcoin cycles are an always unpopular thing uh, because they're very non-intuitive, right? It's a, this idea that something would be regular or cyclical is something that everybody wants to fight against, both the people who are against the idea and the people who are for Bitcoin. It's like every no party wants that to be true. And so therefore, it's like the least popular middle equilibrium is that that just like keeps occurring uh, merely because of its like, you know, huge unpopularity. But again, I, I would say that you know, I think a lot of people get hung up on cycle theory being about specific things. So I had a conversation with Pierre Rissard recently where I defended this point. And I essentially, I said that to me, like cycle theory basically just states that as long as people are economically coordinating around the Bitcoin having or the Bitcoin's monetary policy for their own advantage, for their own economic advantage, as long as, long as that coordination takes place and people coordinate around the monetary policy changes, the cycle theory is still intact. So I'll give you an example of that. So we know that now the next halving is coming up in 2024. How long are we away from that? I think it's April 24 is the yeah. so year so, and a half. So to, to your advantage to acquire Bitcoin in some period before that and probably thereafter that, you would know based on past performance. So the question then is, will people economically coordinate to that behavior again? And will it occur again? So my Pierre was basically saying to me, is like, what are the conditions under which you would abandon this theory? And I basically said, you know, if the Bitcoin price were to hit an all-time high again before the halving, basically people coordinated for their economic benefit without the halving being a, a significant stakeholder at all, I would say that the theory is dead. As long as that economic coordination happens in any way after the halving, as a somewhat a result of the halving, it doesn't matter where after it occurs, it doesn't matter what peak it occurs, it doesn't matter at what time of the year it occurs, it just states that does the actual mechanism work? Does, do peop, does, the, does the actual scarcity of the, mo the money within the money supply and the changing dynamics of that encourage people to economically coordinate on a, on a repeated basis as a result of the policy? So in nine months, the countdown will begin because the right. countdown starts from a year. Mm -hmm. People start talking. I mean, we've seen people talk about it a little bit. And then last time it was front run about six months. But Well, I would actually want to be clear. Like, So I thought the Bitcoin halving was the stupidest thing ever for many years, right? So again, my people who don't know about my background, I was an editor of Coindesk for, for many years and was you know essentially in the no-coiner camp for nothing other than my own, uh, you know, uh, probably inability to intellectualize things at that point. But like, you know, when people would come up to me and they'd be like, oh, what do you think about the having? Like having, 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 you know, it's going to go up. It's going to go up. It's going to be so much. I'm going to be like, oh my God, like, get out of my face. I don't know what to deal with you. I don't know what to do with you. Like this weird pipe dream that you have, right? So like, again, like I understand being somewhat intellectually disgusted with these ideas. Like it, it's something that I'm really sympathetic to. I've, I've been in that camp. Well, the original theory doesn't make sense in that the idea being that the uh, supply halves and therefore there's less supply in the market being sold off by the miners because we've had the experience where miners actually don't even sell sometimes. So, it just again, it's just about the availability of money within the economy and then assuming that demand is constant or demand increases because people think that it's to their advantage, right? So this is why the only term that I've, I've, I want to stick in there for people to gravitate to is like economic coordination. Yeah. Do people coordinate around Bitcoin for their own economic benefit? And does that happen as a result of like the policies within the code? Because if it does, and that is true, then it's true that Bitcoin is like an economic system because you can coordinate around that, right? Doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean that the 
the code is the thing that's doing that. It's like we as humans have agency. So like right now, like maybe you're not buying as much Bitcoin, right? There's just a big bubble. Things are low. Maybe you're not sure that maybe you're not. Maybe you are not economically coordinating around Bitcoin. The question is like, will you? And when will you again, right? So again, like you, the interesting thing- Waiting about, for the herd. Well, again, Bitcoin, the thing that it has about itself. So I think Gwern wrote this and I've increasingly been like really- like sitting with us and thinking about this is that, you know, he wrote a Bitcoin is that, this was in 2011, and he's like a open source kind of computer science guy, uh, but he essentially said, the only thing that Bitcoin really achieved was that it, um, you know, it didn't get everything right about digital cash, it just ensured that the digi- that it would continue to exist in the future, like long enough for people to solve the problems. Like that was the thing that it got right, right? It didn't get everything right, it was it was working and it continued to work and you could continue to improve it. And essentially, like, his argument was, like, that was enough, right? That was the thing that prior, and again, if you look at the kind of history of digital cash, it's, like, there wasn't anything to work on. There was nothing that was public for, like, many, many years. Like, every, nothing got past, like, the theory or being, like, released on the mail list and, like, one guy down. Like, like, simply nothing existed. But there's a term for that, isn't there? The longer something's existed, the more likely it is to continue to exist. I can't remember what the name is. Yeah, there is, yeah. Something's law or something's theorem. Know. There's always a law or theorem for everything. Though, right? Yeah. Yeah. I forget them all. So, like Rizzo's theorem, I guess would be uh, <laughs> would be that uh, you know Bitcoin cycles are really about economic coordination, right? As long as Bitcoin continues to exist and other assets continue to exist and people exist in other economies, as long as Bitcoin creates the conditions under which other people will economically coordinate around it, then you would imagine that that activity would be somewhat resultant of the having and the monetary policy changes. Or you don't believe that the monetary policy matters, which I don't really understand that view at all. What if they don't? What if they don't think it matters? Or if they don't economically coordinate around it this next Well, time. plenty of people are not economically coordinating around Bitcoin. But you could argue that over time, the people who are economically coordinating around Bitcoin has gotten larger. Yeah. So it has to be enough. But what if what if this halving theorem dies? But people say that every before every halving, right? Of course. Yeah. But we know more now. But what do we know that we didn't know before? Like what? <laughs> well, I, I guess before it was like deeply embedded the idea that the market would be flooded with a lot more coins. Uh, sorry, a lot less coins that would be making your coins worth a lot more. But it's, it was a narrative build. Yeah, I don't understand this at all. Because like the, the price went down to like $3,000 and it went up to $60,000 within like a few months. Like, so I, I mean, if that doesn't do it for you, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but I wonder, <laughs> wonder if it's more the narrative that people, rather than the actual, the economics, they bought the narrative, they think the halving's coming, they think it's going to be front run, it's happened, it's happened four times before, it must happen again, rather than actually it is a response to the specific. Well, there's sort of like two counter theories to that, right? So um, one of the theories is essentially like people, uh, so this is the efficient market hypothesis. I think Nick Carter wrote about this, was essentially, you know, that all information known about a market should be priced in, so people should price in the future having. So the, the problem that I have with that is I think that it, it, it assumes that everyone understands Bitcoin. <laughs> Like it assumes that everyone understands how it works, uh, and I think that's incorrect. So the, the the Bitcoin market is by nature inefficient because not all the stakeholders in it have the same knowledge. So Bitcoin has this interesting like game theoretical asymmetry, where you know people coming in who are new don't have the same information with people who have been here, and so then they play the game differently. So they're economically coordinating differently. Um, but again, like all this goes back to I think that the same behaviors. And my point with the original kind of diatribe on okay, well, these behaviors will always present, like, irregardless of a cryptocurrency market, irregardless of exchanges, like, irregardless of there even being a price, 
like Bitcoin created and the conditions under which ado its adoption occurred, right? By by making the coins scarce to acquire. Yeah. Right. Okay. So let me just draw a picture because I think it'll it'll make it. It's late twenty ten or sorry two thousand nine. You've just heard about Bitcoin. It has no price, and it's too hard for you to mine. So you can't make you can't mine it. So how do you get it? Right. So more people want to acquire the thing. So Bitcoin seems to create the conditions under which. Again, like that want distributes the market. Again, I'm not an economist, so I don't really understand this all in aggregate. But I would say like an interesting period if I was an economist to study would be this time period because it seems to be that these same behaviors actually predate there being a price or like in a cryptocurrency exchange or any sort of like cryptocurrency market, right? Where where Bitcoin created the conditions under which, you know, again, with an influx in demand, uh, there was just this explosion of of interest and use. And again, like the price is a signal of that. It is not the entirety of that. And it's actually it actually, I think, says a lot that it occurred without it, right? Because mm. it's, if it occurred without it, I'm much more likely to believe that it will continue into the future because it was an it was a priority. It existed. It was it was something that existed without the current conditions, and now should only continue to benefit from the continued conditions, right? It's more accessible. Bring on the next run, then. Well, look, I'm coordinating around. I'll, I'll just be honest. I'll lay it on the table. It's a bear market. I guess we don't have anything to lose. I'm coordinating around Bitcoin. What if you are, and then I am? And then if I am, Danny should, and so should Jeremy, and then... Right. But we're all playing the game differently. Yeah. We're but not similarly. coordinating the same. But similarly. Right. We're all coordinating for an upwards move. Uh, eventually, right, yeah. Yeah. Right. N none of us are selling. No, yeah, that's right. So we're just accumulating. But just because ways. you're not selling doesn't mean that you're buying, right? So there's different behaviors, right? So for myself, like I did not buy Bitcoin uh, at all for like 2021 or 2022. Is it 2023? Yeah, I don't know what year it is. We're in 2022 now. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I only recently, you know, started. I started economically coordinating around Bitcoin. Well, your timing is probably better than the majority of mine in the last four years. Well, so Three again, years. like I think part of the cycle theory as well. Again, I don't know how much you want to spend on this, but again, I think that there's there's a point at which the resultant like price activity and euphoria like overwhelms the cryptocurrency companies, like the the for profit companies in the industry, and they simply can't continue to like function under that demand. And then essentially, like you know, it's their kind of capitulation that usually kind of signals the end of the of the bull cycle, right? So, and then we come back. We made a full circle. Full you know. circle. Well, the other thing that comes with the bear market is uh, people falling out with each other a little bit more regularly. Well, so uh, well, we talked about this last time, and I would repeat it again. I think there's a tendency of human beings to ascribe that like the things that they're saying in the market and doing in the market are the thing that is impacting Bitcoin's growth and its price movement, and then we form like an in, like an attachment to these ideas, right? Yeah. And then when it turns out we were wrong, uh, then like it's painful because we're like, oh yeah, we were so good at like talking about macroeconomics and whatever the fuck, and like oh that's the thing that was getting all these investors in, and oh and that's gone, oh whoa we, you know, no, you created that attachment to that narrative. The narrative didn't really matter. Like hopefully the narrative advanced our understanding like a bit, but we're we're in the process of like kind of throwing out these narratives repeatedly. Like since I've been in the space, right? Like when I came in in 2013, like there were whole Different narratives, and we learned some. What was of back things. then? Oh, payments, Bitcoin for payments. Okay, that was Bitcoin twenty thirteen. Was the conference title was Bitcoin for payments? It was all the startups were coming in, Silicon Valley was coming in, Andreessen Horowitz was here to invest in Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin companies. The suits were arriving. All the old riffraff was getting pushed out. If you were speaking about anti-government or you know, Bitcoin as a tool against the state, you were 
essentially shifted out. He was shown right. the door. Uh, and like, you know, that was the time. Like, so every cycle uh, has this uh, thing that happens where like human beings, they watch what happens. They think that they're involved in what Bitcoin is doing and that what is happening in the Bitcoin market says something about the value of what they're doing. And again, my bet over the last cycle was that like, that would be wrong again. And like, here we are, right? That wasn't, we weren't correct. But we learned a little bit, right? We advanced a little bit. And I think that's the goal. Right? So if we learn every cycle, what, what narrative it isn't? No, I don't think that's totally true. I think what happens is that there's, um, you know, to come out of the bear market, you need to kind of like have a new narrative set around Bitcoin. So I think like the last market, uh, so coming out of like the fork wars in 2017, you were around for that, right? There was a tremendous disillusionment with like the Bitcoin community. Like it wasn't clear why Bitcoin was working. We just got this period where everybody like beat each other up for two years. Like essentially like Bitcoin succeeded despite all of our failures, right? Um and then from that, like, we get the Bitcoin standard, which is essentially, like, you know, this tome about how, you know, economics and about how Bitcoin functions economically, some of which I've sort of said in a different, hopefully more colloquial way than Safedian has. But, you know, again, like this idea that um, there's this history of economics, that, you know, economics has always worked in a certain way. Bitcoin is a, you know, instantiation of that. Uh, and that, you know, uh, we perhaps don't, our efforts are not what is propelling Bitcoin. Uh, what is propelling Bitcoin is this, the natural economic progress of a hard money, yada, yada, yada. This starts like, you know, there's 1,800 different books about it and everybody's got a blog about, you know, monetary whatever the fuck and they're lifting weights and like, who, you know, who knows? And then you get everybody's eating steaks and, you know, thinking that this is it, you know? And then, and like, so there's the, there's the germ of the seed of the idea, which is good. And then I think the thing that happens in bull markets, again, is that there's this somewhat tremendous theater around it, right, um, where everybody kind of buys into that it's happening now. I'm here. I'm special. It has to be happening. Oh, I can't. I couldn't be in Bitcoin early. It has to be happening because I'm here. You know, and then we just reset, right? It's just, it. you know, the people love the meme, we're early. Well, hey, you're early, you know. <laughs> you know? Whoops. Yeah. So we're waiting for a new narrative. Well, I think like the narrative process, okay, so I'm not cynical about, I'm a little cynical about the narrative process, but it is important, right? So with every, we are trying to understand a scientific phenomena, right? So I had an argument about with this with like a journalist recently, and I said, you know, I think this is one of the big disagreements in the space is people are like, oh, well, the narratives are all changing. And like, there's always all these like changing narratives around Bitcoin. And I was like, yeah, because in science, you're just, you're trying to describe the natural world and it is actually the descriptions of the world that change. Like when we like were cavemen and we were trying to understand the universe, like the universe has existed in the same way. There were always stars in the sky, and like even if we made them into little shapes of like people riding horses, they st they still fucking existed. And like you know, when we decided that the Earth was the center of the universe, the universe was the same way it is right now. We understand the universe a little bit better right now, right? We have this model that the sun is the center of the universe and that the universe is expanding. Whatnot. So again, like the 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 reality of the instance has been the same in every period. It, and it is precisely the descriptions of the reality that change. And I think in the scientific process, that actually is what should be happening. Oh, I'd like that. I really like that, that comparison to, you know, we understand, we, we can't understand what we don't see, but as mm. we see more, we understand more about it. Right. I think Bitcoin is, it's hard for people to understand that that is a possible thing with Bitcoin because people don't. There's this weird like at the at the schism, it's tangible mm, at the schism between like no coinerism, Bitcoin maximalism, and altcoinism is this like weird idea that like both the no coiners and the altcoin people are uncomfortable with that like there's something special about Bitcoin and both the other camps sort of like implicitly reject this, uh, and so therefore they also reject this idea that Bitcoin has like a permanence like as a piece of software because it's digital, right? So the idea that Bitcoin 
So, so we don't associate, like, so when I say the solar system argument, where you would say, oh, well, the solar system is permanent, permanent. And it's like, maybe it actually will explode at some point. So, like, if that's your feeling about it, then I guess great. But then, you know, uh, Bitcoin has sort of the same thing, right? We expect Bitcoin to be permanent because it continues to work and it's shown no signs that it won't continue to work in perpetuity. So the Bitcoin maximalist view, I think, is definitely takes that understanding of it, right? Like Bitcoin is something that exists. Like none of us created it. None of us are responsible for it. So it's only something that we can continue to understand like an increasing degree. And we have to accept then that we don't actually understand all of it. And no coiners and the altcoin groups, they both reject that. They both view Bitcoin as the sum of like individual human action or narrative formation or that there's something about... Bitcoin, that can be improved. Uh, but I think there is some weird root schism here, and it's like an inability. It's like a specific disagreement about the permanence of Bitcoin and like whether something digital can be permanent. And I think Bitcoiners actually have to, they, they start from that assumption. It's like a behavioral trait I noticed amongst like the Bitcoin core developers like very early on. They all saw, and you'll probably agree with this, they all saw themselves as being like outside of Bitcoin and like not really responsible for it. But then also not being really able to change it, and then having to have a community sense consensus around this, right? So there was always this weird, I don't know, this behavioral, you know, um, like element around Bitcoin, right? Uh, where there was no leader, there was no we. There's a group of people using a software, and there's an expectation that that software will continue to exist because people hold economic value in it. Yeah, but I just really like that idea that we don't know what it will be or what it will become. I like that idea. It kind of humbles you. Rather than saying, right. because we've been through that, Bitcoin is gold 2.0, Bitcoin is inflation Well, so, so myself, like sitting outside the process, I, can, I prefer to view this as like, this is us actually being well, like, you know, we're actually responsibly participating in the act of science by continuing to describe the phenomena that we can't explain. And that, ex again, it's like, I understand why that's an un... Like people have trouble with that idea because again, you have to you have to come to the view that Bitcoin will continue to exist, that like no one is responsible for it. And again, this is like a different thing where I think a lot of journalists like really struggle with this, right? Where it's like, you know, the difference with other cryptocurrency projects is that there is actually someone who launched it, and they launched it with a specific promise. And again, they you know, and the, they're working towards that promise. Right. So then you get into like whether Bitcoin also did that, right? Did Satoshi do that? And like if Satoshi did do that, right? So there's all these like second order questions. But I think that there's, again, at the root level of this, there's like a disagreement about whether Bitcoin is special or unique. And kind of going back to the original part of this conversation, my argument would be that it is because it is quite simply like one of the, the first project to emerge from a series of projects to be successful, and then it was specifically successful because of its economics, and the economics are the thing that just allows it to continue to exist. So it is precisely the permanence of it that is the result of the technology development. And so that's kind of where I start a little bit with Bitcoin maximalism, right? So why, where would you go with ETH? Why does ETH continue to exist? Same for the economics? Well, I think, so I replied to Joe Weisenthal on this on Twitter, but I did definitely think this is true, is I think that the crypto asset thesis, I think, is dead. I think it's an arguably dead because... You know, again, as Kyle Samani has been like, you know, talking about the decoupling for for years and years and years, there is no other crypto asset that has a meaningful economic regularity that exists outside of Bitcoin. So there are the if you want to go back to like the space argument, it's like they're all these are all asteroids uselessly orbiting Bitcoin. They just have none of their own gravitational pull, or that they or they would differentiate from Bitcoin meaningfully. 
So again, I think the root here, like if you're if you're really if this is going to be another conversation about Bitcoin maximalism, it's like some of the root divergences of Bitcoin maximalism again is like this permanence thing. It's the fact that the economics are the thing that's propelling it, not the technology. And then it metastasizes in all these different ways, right? Uh, and then and one of them is what we just discussed. So yeah, well, I definitely want to talk about Bitcoin maximalism because you wrote about it again. I always find it a fascinating subject, and I definitely meander my with my own personal views on on it and it's what it is and what its benefits are but the uh, and i I've, I've certainly been uh, on the receiving end of criticism and attempts to cancel and blocks oh, yeah same with me I'm yeah sure. regularly from people. I'm a very unlikely spokesperson for bitcoin maximalism just to be very clear well I'm a spokesman for the bits of it I understand and I can define and in certain, certain ways, well, I again, I think that's one. why I've been able to speak about it is because I have spent so long trying to understand it. I don't think I immediately understood Bitcoin maximalism. I didn't understand why it existed, um, and so then I spent the better part of the last year writing a bunch of you know esoteric Forbes articles, you know, essentially about okay, what is this? What is it that defines Bitcoin maximalism? And I think again, like this is sort of like going back to another conversation I had with a journalist recently. It's it's sort of if you get rid of the frame that that Bitcoin is like part of markets, right? Like markets coverage and like sort of these these crazy fandoms, like around investment assets these days. You're left with the fact that there are different sociologies within the cryptocurrency space, and those sociologies form around things that are actually occurring within the technology. And so then what you're really debating when you debate any of these things is like what is the relationship between the sociology and the actual technology? So that that's the actually if you would actually pinpoint a point of disagreement it would be Bitcoin maximalism is a sociology, right? A group of people who believe that Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that will persevere in the future and it's the best hope for humanity to continue to building on that. Does that properly reflect the what is happening within the field of the technology? And then I would kind of parentheses like and the markets because I don't know for some reason the cryptocurrency people generally like really care about the markets for some reason. Uh, so like those are the two layers of the question, right? So we have actually a a, a a few different sociologies that emerge, and they all have a have to have a stance on the technology. So that's so again just partitioning in here. It's like if you come from this idea of thinking that Bitcoin is like GameStop or AMC and all that kind of wacky stuff, that's not. Those are just stock. Investment phenomenons like that's that's a completely separate phenomenon. And here in cryptocurrency, it's like why do we talk about Bitcoin maximalism? Because we're talking about a sociology that's developed around a series of like technological claims. And then the question is like, are those things related? And how related are they? And I'd say like the cryptocurrency, you know, at large group is the same. Like people are agnostic to cryptocurrency; they just like cryptocurrency as a whole. They have a certain worldview, and that's related to certain like you know actual things that are occurring with technology. And then the no coiners like as well, right? The no coiners have a stance, and it's related to the technology. In this case, they reject it. But well, I think I think we talk about it because we ascribe a certain number of behaviors or expectations from those who we think are it. So so externals, or your no coiners, or your all coiners, they ascribe a certain of uh, behaviors, usually in a pejorative way. And then internally, it is owned by maximalists, who also ascribe a certain number of behaviors or expectations they have of people they th they think are maximalists or think should be maximalists. Mm -hmm. So it's it's I think it it kind of groups together things such as uh, or or even it, it can even be used to coordinate co cohorts of people. That you think these this is what my need my so, like minded people. Yeah, so this is where I think a lot of the Uyghur criticisms of Bitcoin maximalism have been aimed lately. Is this they, isn't a criticism? This is an observation. Well, but they aim the criticisms at the sociology of it, and they don't actually like 
make some sort of, you, they don't connect the two. You actually have to connect the two. Otherwise, your criticism is somewhat meaningless. And I, I wrote this in the Forbes piece that I wrote about Bitcoin maximalism. It's like, you know, this is the same as saying like, oh, okay, well, the woke movement is stupid because they hate straw, plastic, paper straws, you know, and uh, so the whole thing's garbage because like, you know, all these people are yelling at me because I have plastic straws. Like it's, it's, it's a, you can engage in this sort of behavior where you're dismissing the, the, the behavior of a certain group of people without interfacing with the ideology. You're welcome to do that. It is simply not a useful human endeavor and I refuse to participate in it because <laughs> it's so and colossally dumb. Like if you're, if you're actually- But I'm just observing- I'm just observing, and you're going into the criticism. Well, I think what I was saying is that I think a lot of the criticisms, so again, what's been happening in the space that's inspired the writing is that there are people who are saying we need to reject Bitcoin maximalism or we need to move beyond Bitcoin maximalism, and their criticisms are specifically aimed at the sociology around it. But I, I in some ways, think that's stupid because I don't think there is a clear understanding of what Bitcoin maximalism is. I think some of the people think you need to move beyond it or think you need to change it, are focusing on one part of Bitcoin maximalism, right. and those defending it are focusing on another part, and they're actually talking across each other, but they think uh -huh. it's the same thing. So, for yes. example, somebody might, might be defending it, talking about, because they care about the protocol, and they think their behavior, their behavior is about defending the protocol because they think it might be attacked by another Roger Veer type. They're defending that, and they think that's what they're doing, Whereas the person criticizing is saying, yeah, I agree with all of that, but I disagree with this canceling mob culture, abusive nature, and they're talking across each other. Then, whereas in reality, they both want probably the same thing. Unless it's an altcoiner who hates Bitcoin, unless it's a Carl Salami who just wants to criticize it for the sake of it, if they're, if they're both Bitcoiners. Because mm -hmm. I don't care. I'm, I'm disinterested in what altcoiners think about Bitcoin. I am disinterested in what altcoiners think about Bitcoin maximalism. It means nothing to me. Hmm. What I care about is where two people consider themselves Bitcoiners and they become mortal enemies, yet they have the same enemy. You know, it's that old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Okay, we agree on 95% of stuff, but because of this 5 10% over here, we're going to fall out. And then we're going to waste time arguing over that shit when we could be working together. That's the bit I find most interesting, when Bitcoiners fight Bitcoiners. Um... Yeah, I think it's a little bit hard for me to interface with it. So I think your claim is essentially like Bitcoiners are fighting against Bitcoiners. So then you have to get over the claim. So in my view, and I think I've said this on your podcast before, there are no Bitcoiners. It's like either your actions align with Bitcoin or they don't. You cannot be a Bitcoiner just by declaration. That just doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, but how do you how do you then align with? Uh, What's the set of rules? In any specific action you take, it either aligns with Bitcoin or it's insignificant to Bitcoin or it is not aligned with Bitcoin. But how do you, how, what, where are the set of rules? Uh, how do you define that? Give me an example. Okay. Well, so I, I think we've said this before. It's like you go downstairs and you buy a coffee with your US dollars. Yeah. Okay. So are you a Bitcoiner? Have you done anything good for Bitcoin uh, in that moment? Uh, the answer is no, right? Okay. But, but hold on, that doesn't make any sense because I'm still a Bitcoiner. I hold Bitcoin, I buy Bitcoin, I run a Bitcoin podcast, I'm still a Bitcoiner. I just used my money downstairs because it was convenient or I'm hodling. Uh, but I, like in that moment, you were not doing anything related to Bitcoin. You were just a person living in the world. So there's, you can't, there's, no, <laughs> there's no being or not being a Bitcoiner. There's only being one in a, in a specific time Well, time the question scale. is like, is your action good for Bitcoin or not? Then every is every decision you have to make 
constantly be about what's good for Bitcoin. No, absolutely not. But like the if you are someone who is doing good for Bitcoin, then and especially in certain contexts, like then the answer would be yes. Are right? you talking like, net good then? I think you're I think you're like tripping me up a little bit here. So like what I'm just trying to say is that like again, I'm just using your example. Yeah, my example is like I don't think you like what 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 is like you, all right, if you're a human being in the world and you're sitting at a soccer game, it's like how are you a bitcoin because you identify as one like you're nothing about your human action is like in any way good at that moment for the network. Like, but not, how are you not a bitcoiner then? So what you're saying is you, you can't be a bitcoiner. There can uh, only be periods of time where you are a bitcoiner. Right. I think that makes it easier to understand that like specific actions you take can be negative for Bitcoin. So this is where I get into the example of like criticizing like pub public figures, right? So I I'm gonna sorry, I wanna focus on this bit and I might get some backup from Danny here on okay, this one. Sure. But but what you're saying is if I'm at a soccer game and I'm watching it, I'm not doing anything good for Bitcoin, so I'm not a Bitcoiner. Now if I go and buy a coffee and then spend uh, dollars that's not good for Bitcoin, so I'm not a Bitcoin. No, it just depends on your perception of it. I've, I'm, what I'm saying is, like, in aggregate, you should some you should strive to do as much as you can for the benefit of the Bitcoin and of of Bitcoin. And then in instances where you could take an action to benefit Bitcoin, and then you don't, you are doing something that is worthy of criticism by other Bitcoiners. Yeah, but but again, sorry, I'm going to stick on this because what, that's fine. If you do something against Bitcoin, you're worthy for criticism, but. You you you've been. This is really opaque definition of what Bitcoin <laughs> makes you a Bitcoiner. Like it's super why, opaque. Why is it not? It's actually very clear. Like so. So how do you score this? You only a Bitcoiner if you're constantly doing good for every decision you make is good for Bitcoin. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm just saying. Like I reject this idea that like you, you can, like the entirety of your being can manifest into like you being a human being who is like wholly positive for Bitcoin. Like that's no, the whole I, I, notion I've not of said ridiculous. that. I've okay. not said that in the slightest. What I'm saying is. Are you a Bitcoin? Like, are we? Are, if we're asking the question, are you a Bitcoiner or not? You're saying if I go and buy a cup of coffee and I don't use my Bitcoin, I'm not a Bitcoiner because I should have spent Bitcoin. I'm saying like your specific action didn't align with anything that would be positive for the network. Well, I have two issues with that. Okay, one that's your that's your observation. That's your choice. That's not mine. I don't. I don't think if Danny goes and buys a cup of coffee with his dollars, I don't. I don't ascribe that to him not being a Bitcoiner. <laughs> but it's it's quite simply an action that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Is my only point. Yeah, but they're, they're, and they're, so then then we go back to the point that you're saying you can only be a Bitcoin in specific time frames. That's my contention because I think otherwise it just appears very illogical. Like, so, it's hard to live in a world like where someone is purely a Bitcoiner and then any action that they take is then somehow absolved because it doesn't like again because they've done. This is the whole like ridiculous thing about like, oh, this guy's done so much for Bitcoin. So no, like, why that. are you piling on in this like one instance? And the issue is like because in that instance the action didn't align with Bitcoin and it was an objectively like thing that people want to criticize. No, no, I, I follow that. Everyone should be open to criticism. Everyone, that's fine, and you can criticize any action. So the problem I have with your definition is that there's like I haven't defined anything. You have. You've said that like you can just always be a Bitcoiner. Did I say that? Purely by declaration. I don't think I said that. <laughs> I, I'm trying to understand your definition. That's uh, my point. It's like you. you I well, think what you're saying okay. is you. you you're so never. Like, are you a Bitcoin. person who owns a couch? I like, own a okay, couch. Right. Okay. Great. So then, like, how much of your just daily life is like influenced by that? Very little. Okay. 
right. So you're not entire your whole life doesn't become colored by this like one utilitarian decision that you have. That you're a homeowner. Yes. Are you always a homeowner? Like in every instance, like yes. in a, for the rest of time, you're a homeowner. Well, I, I am now until you I, own a car. I own a car. Okay. So then we're building up a, a multi-varied idea of you as a human being that has nothing to do with like you being a Bitcoiner. Like you're a human being who interfaces with the world in a lot of ways. Yes, but but I'm still trying to. Understand. You're a British person. Yeah, I am a British person. Okay. And I'm I'm always a British person <laughs> until I choose not to become a British person. Right. Okay. Okay. But but like you're not born into being Bitcoin like a Bitcoiner. There's no Bitcoin no. country. There's no nationality. Right? No. So th- this is what I'm trying to get to is the point you're saying you're never really a Bitcoiner. You're just a person who makes decisions that affect Bitcoin. Because uh, if that would make sense, yeah. if that's what you're saying, yes. then then you're retiring the retiring the term Bitcoiner. So there's no Bitcoiner. I've never used the term Bitcoiner. But I'm saying is like in this in this instance, you're saying it's just not a relevant term. Again, I think that all right. So maybe to paraphrase this in a way that might relate to people is that there's current and currently a lot of like you know uh, anger in the community about who or who is not a Bitcoiner. And I and I, again, I simply reject that framing because I don't think it's useful. Because it is quite possible to, for you as a human being to do many things that are good for Bitcoin and some things are, that are not good for Bitcoin. And then for you to receive criticism about those things that are not good for Bitcoin and then for those people to be entirely valid in their criticisms or not valid in those criticisms. I, I agree that you absolutely should be open to criticism. Um, uh, but I'm just, again, I'm not trying to argue against you. I'm just trying to understand your framing. And if you're saying you can't be a Bitcoiner, then I don't think you can be a Bitcoin maximalist. You, I think you can be a Bitcoin maximalist. But what if in, in what if in that mo- <laughs> in that moment you your actions aren't good for Bitcoin? Uh, because I would define a, a Bitcoin maximalist as someone who's aspirationally trying to do as much as they can to advance the Bitcoin protocol. See, I, do you know what I think the slight difference is? What I think I think a Bitcoin there's a Bitcoiner and there's a Bitcoin maximalist, and the person who maybe is a Bitcoiner isn't thinking about every single decision they ever make. To be good for Bitcoin, yeah, of course not. They've got other shit going on, right? Of course, yeah. And I think that pretty much describes everyone because I don't think anyone out there is making every decision in part. I think they will. They will. Uh, a virtue, they are. They will signal they are, but uh-huh. I don't think they are. Right, but I, I, again, I think what we're what we're talking about here is like just to kind of maybe level set this conversation here is that. In within the industry, like one of the things that we're currently trying to argue against, and that Bitcoin maximalism is currently opposing, is this idea that you can do a certain set of things in a way that benefits Bitcoin, and then you can do those set of things in a way that doesn't benefit Bitcoin, right? And the financial incentive for you to do those things in a way that does not benefit Bitcoin is oftentimes higher. Okay, so for example, if I go for a run, whereas I could have been writing an uh, an educational piece. For uh, for people to learn about Bitcoin, does that make me not a? No, I would say like if you start a business and if you choose to, or you start a protocol, or you start some sort of like anything that would potentially be connected to Bitcoin and further the network in such a way, uh, but then you start and you you build this as a sort of another company or or cryptocurrency protocol or something like that. Uh, you're quite simply like choosing to do something in a way that does not line up with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin maximalism exists to oppose that. That is essentially like what it is in opposition to. So what again? So because one of the interesting thing is, it's like you're almost a scr- it's like setting a, a set of rules without actually defining the rules. Like, what are the things that? Give me an example of that. An example of what? Well, so you've you know what are the things that that you could be doing? Which you know you're originally this uh, Bitcoin maximalist. You're doing all your Bitcoiny things, and then suddenly you do something else that doesn't align with Bitcoin. That means you're you're not a Bitcoiner anymore. 
No, it just means that that in, in that specific instance, like what you did was not in Bitcoin's best interest, and that that should be okay. Well, well what counts in the list? Like I say, go, going for a run, if rather instead of writing an educational piece, you're saying that's fine. But going well, to make a cup no, of coffee. All I'm saying isn't. is that we make those choices every day. <laughs> like we're just like again. I think like this this conversation is like a, it's like about. I think you're missing the point that I'm trying to make is that like we're call complex human beings like interacting with the world like in complex ways. And then some of the things that we're doing are good for Bitcoin. In aggregate, again, like if you're going to be someone who's trying to advance Bitcoin in some way, you should aspire to be doing the most things possible that are aligned with Bitcoin. Otherwise, you're just, you know, a regular person who owns Bitcoin. Like you're just no you know. or, or, or you've just got other shit going on. You're a bit busy. Sometimes you can't do everything that somebody else does. But my this is where I think the problem is, is I think it becomes so opaque. And and then it, the, the opaqueness becomes an attack service for attacking somebody else. Oh, well, you're not a good enough Bitcoiner because you didn't do, 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 but I did it. And it's just this pathetic infighting with a group of people who agree on 90% no, of things. we're trying to talk about what's good for Bitcoin, and we're trying to... So, like, that's one way to look at it. I mean, if you want to take that sort of view on it. I sort of look at it as we're trying to have a conversation about what is good for Bitcoin, and then if you have a platform... If you own a business, you're a venture capitalist, you're a media person in the space, you're a journalist who's generally interested. If you have a platform, then is that plat are you doing things with that platform that is aligned with Bitcoin, right? So it's not this is why again, like I think you're saying there's a couple levels here, right? Like you're I think you're using the word Bitcoiner. I'm just saying, like, yeah, sure, there's a whole class of people who just own Bitcoin, they go along with their lives. You know, they don't have to deal with like any of this stuff. There's a whole class of people who own Bitcoin who do a lot of stuff for Bitcoin who wouldn't make it in the maximalist bracket. Uh I just generally disagree with that, I think, because I think that those people are oftentimes, and again, this is what, when you look at like the cryptocurrency, the people who are just like agnostic about cryptocurrencies, they're often doing things for their own financial benefit or to make businesses that for their own financial benefit or to deliver, like to create like a company that delivers a product or service for like a group of people. All right, let me, let me give you another example. I had uh, Seth for privacy on this show and we talked about Monero. Uh -huh. Is that bad for Bitcoin? Uh, I mean, again, it's, it depends on what the context was. I mean, you know, usually the context around Monero is like a talk about privacy, like which yeah. privacy features are available on Bitcoin and then which privacy features are available elsewhere and how we can potentially bring those back to Bitcoin. Yeah, that was exactly the kind of conversation it was. But you go comments on YouTube, this is now what shitcoin did, why have you got a shitcoiner on here? So that group of people have put me in a different camp. They've said, oh, you're not a Bitcoin maximalist. Well, again, I think it like it, it comes out to like what's the intent of the expression and like what are you are we talking about, right? So like, um, and again, this is the one of the big tension points around Bitcoin maximalism right now, right? Is there's a series of things that are you know technically not possible on the Bitcoin blockchain that occur elsewhere yeah. within the space and then are possible because other people have either launched cryptocurrencies or they have businesses that offer those services. And so then the question then is like, okay, to what extent are we as a group of people aspiring? to bring those things to Bitcoin. To me, like the people who are fit the Bitcoin maximalist, that is what they're doing. They're aspiring to bring, again, Bitcoin is money, it's disrupting all of money. All of these things are occurring within the, the window pane of us talking about money, finance, and financial services. So then the question is like, okay, well, how far does this revolution go? How far are we willing to take it and what are we willing to do? Right, so a Bitcoin maximalist, I think, takes the position that they want to further that to the greatest extent possible, and that is moral and correct and and the right thing to do that, because oftentimes the people who don't do that, right. So the question you look at it is like, well, why develop on Bitcoin? If you're a Bitcoin, if you're a developer, why would you work on Bitcoin? You could quite simply be paid more to not work on Bitcoin, 
by working on any of the other cryptocurrencies that launch, any of the other projects in the space that will pay you more money. So, so why do that? There has to be a reason, and then Bitcoin Maximalism exists to provide that reason, because it says that it is moral and just and good to extend the Bitcoin protocol. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. And now BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now also expanding globally. They've also got this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you do want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more about what they do, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we have Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs, and I am back mining Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I've actually been back mining Bitcoin for about nine months with Compass, and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin which has pretty much paid off two of my S19s already. And it's so good to be back mining. It's been a really interesting year. It's forced me to learn a lot more about mining again. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass. And to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, and it's based on a number of factors. Price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass has made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining, if you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling at the moment. I'm only buying, and I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Now, Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. So if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also, we have Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. So say if, um, say if I'm traveling with work, I end up in Palestine, somebody turns around to me and said, we've got terrible inflation here, the money's no uh, good, what should yeah. I use? Uh, someone would say, and certain people I know will say, the moral, just, and 
best thing you can do is tell them to get Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in those instances, they'll have to use the existing cryptocurrency exchange and stablecoin infrastructure in order to acquire that Bitcoin. I wouldn't even give that recommendation. If somebody's living hand-to-mouth in a regime like that, I'd be saying to them, you should get Tether, and Tether is available on these blockchains. Oh, well, that's what I just said, yeah. Yeah, and this is the quickest and easy thing you used to do. And you should be holding, if you're, if you're living hand-to-mouth, you don't want Bitcoin. It's no good for you right now. You need Tether mm-hmm. because you do not need price volatility. Right, but a Bitcoin maximalism perspective would recognize that situation, understand that in those instances, people are making the best choices for themselves, for their own life in the world. And then they would aspire, they would then aspire to attempt to fix the situation okay. by returning those products and services to an environment in which those people can can acquire that, those services without trusting the same parties. I'm telling you, there are people who consider themselves Bitcoin maximalists who will not okay. do that. And this is a problem. This is the, the whole thing's opaque. And we well, are... F- the, the problem, anything anything that people identify as is inherently opaque. <laughs> but but <laughs> the, what I'm trying to get to on this is that there is a common goal and a common direction, okay? There's a common goal, which no, is the growth of... I there's think not. There's, there's no two common. directions. There's, so if there's no common goal, then there's no Bitcoin maximalism. Sorry, there's there's a there's the common I, there's the common goal of aspirationally trying to advance Bitcoin as far as possible. Then there's a couple of deviations from that. It's one recognizing that there's some limitations to that, and then trying to fix it. That's Bitcoin maximalism. The second is recognizing there's some limitations, and then trying to profit off of it or create another adjunct service to that. Right. So again, it's how do you combat that? This is why I keep going back to. That. I think I was going to interject when you said earlier. It's that. Bitcoin maximalism, if you want to talk about markets, everybody in this industry loves markets. It is an ideology that has been adopted by the market. And it is the ideology that continues to serve a useful function for the market because it exists to oppose the financial incentives that would encourage people to build products and services elsewhere in ways where those users of those systems have to trust people or have a a diminished experience compared to if it was on Bitcoin, right? So again, example, you go Tether. There's Tarot, which is Lightning Labs' proposal to rebuild stablecoins on yep. Bitcoin. That is a Bitcoin maximalist proposal. It states that there is a useful product and service elsewhere. The people who are using that service, they don't have very good risks and trade-offs compared to owning Bitcoin itself. And that aspirationally, our goal is to correct that. Yeah. That is a Bitcoin maximalist thing to, 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 to follow that, right? And it exists at any point... I think, in which people, again, because what we're trying to do here is that Bitcoin as the asset has certain properties, right? There's certain properties of the Bitcoin monetary system. I think our goal is to expand that to the greatest degree possible, and that includes encompassing successful products and financial services elsewhere, stablecoins, exchanges, Jack Dorsey right now working on centralized Bitcoin exchanges. These are all Bitcoin maximalist things that are trying to take things that exist elsewhere that are you know, monetizing and creating value for people in the short term back to Bitcoin, that endeavor has to be what Bitcoin maximalism is. So, I mean, that that's a great definition, and I can buy mm-hmm. into that. I don't think many people who are see themselves as Bitcoin maximists see it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think it's I think it's fractured into a number of different behaviors and expectations of people that go beyond that. Yeah, that, that stretch beyond just Bitcoin. It's political beliefs. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of, I don't need to bring them all up, a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. things. And that has been something that has, I think, has fractured 
maximalists. I think it has it's fractured a group of people who really are aligned on 90% of things. Well, then I think then the people who recognize that Bitcoin maximalism serves a goal need to reclaim the term Bitcoin maximalism and not reject it. Because I do agree that it, like you would have to agree that Bitcoin maximalism is useful. How else would you express that you as a human being or that you as a group or whatever want to maximally extend the innovation of Bitcoin to include as many financial services and things as possible. No, I, I don't know. Like I said, I completely agree with you. I, I absolutely do. But we were we were at a um, we were at an event in Miami the other day. It was a panel, mm-hmm. and they said, "What makes you a Bitcoin maximalist?" And I said, "Because I completely agree uh, with you. I, I mean, I only hold Bitcoin. I only really care about Bitcoin." I said, "But I can't call myself one for two reasons." Okay, firstly, in certain scenarios, I would do certain transactions with Monero, and I wouldn't do that with Bitcoin certain things. And also, I can't square the circle of the usefulness of dollar, dollar stable coins in certain geographies on networks like Tron, where I don't care about the network, but I care about the individual having access to that dollar. And the reason I said that is because even defending those, you get called a shitcoiner, a scammer. Well, so I think this is where like Bitcoin maximum interest, like reaches like a bit of an interesting limit, where it's essentially like, you know, there's a huge movement in the space also to ossify Bitcoin to the point where it mm-hmm. wouldn't change at any point in the future, right? Uh, so again, I think that we as like a group of users, like we have to be willing to extend Bitcoin to do these things, right? So like again, I can only talk and say Bitcoin maximalism is this aspiration. It's this aspiration to build all these products and services and rebuild them back on Bitcoin. Right, uh, that's all well and good, but I think that um, you know we have to then sort of make technology decisions collectively, right, to further that. Right, so there's this weird, I think, imbalance right now where if you were actually going to put out a criticism of Bitcoin maximalism, maximalism is that essentially, you know, it both wants to aspirationally expand Bitcoin to the greatest degree possible, but then is somewhat unwilling to engage with like the technical realities of like whether that's possible and like to what extent we would actually take action to make that possible. So a good example would be then, um, I think as Bitcoin- Drive chains, we just did drive chains. Right, and I think that gets into like a whole different band of theoretics that I think we talked to uh, talked about last time a little bit. But essentially, I would say then, um, you know, because there's different conditions under that. Like there's, you don't always have to go right to the extreme of like of drive chains to, to get where we're going. Well, it's just we just had Paul in. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But I'm just saying that I think people like misunderstand like when I would say that. It's a, so what I would say is that, you know, if, if you are someone who wants Bitcoin to ossify, if you don't want Bitcoin as a technology to continue to change, right, for the for the tech, for the technology to advance in that way, uh, then at some point you're going to have to acknowledge that there are going to be limitations. We're not going to be able to rebuild trustless financial services on top of Bitcoin in the same way. I don't think there's going to be some limitation point. So then I think it would be disingenuous for you to be a Bitcoin maximalist in that standpoint where you hold those two opposing ideas, where you both, one, are against anything else that Bitcoin can't currently do, but then are unwilling or, or unable to support anything that would help make that change. So that, that is disingenuous because essentially you're holding two conflicting ideas. You're saying aspirationally everything should be built on Bitcoin and we only need Bitcoin, but then you as a human being, you're saying I as a participant in the network, I as someone who runs a node, would never support anything that would bring any of these things to Bitcoin. That's a difficult position because essentially you're doing, you again, going back to like the action, because I want to return it, I think, to this whole discussion with like, are you Bitcoin, are you Bitcoin maximalist? It has to start with you taking action, right? Has to be some action. Like, what is the action that you are taking? We can't, like, any of these things, like, these these terms that you're throwing around, like, they have to be participatory, like, defined on some type of behavior. Uh, otherwise, they're totally meaningless. But the, but some of the things that people want to bring to Bitcoin are subjective, right? 
or you saying anything that can be else be built elsewhere should be able to be built on Bitcoin. However, whatever it is. Well, again, I think that again, everything is like a very broad term, right? Yeah. So we're talking about Bitcoin, we're talking about the domain of money and financial services. So, you know, maybe someone who's like a more of a Bitcoin maximalist in the monetary sense, like Stefan Levera, like he'll say, you know, I think that eventually uh, Bitcoin, like it'll continue to, to work and then, you know, we'll have Bitcoin banks, there'll be full reserve banks. And essentially that's to me the limit of what Bitcoin maximalism achieves, right? And then, so I would say as a counterpoint to that, okay, great, accept your definition, Let's just say that there's other types of custodial financial services that then are rebuilt elsewhere. If you are going to take that definition and you're going to draw some limit in the line, then you have to accept that other things will be built by people outside of that. And then it is then disingenuous for you to oppose those things because those things exist to serve a void and a need that like you have determined that you don't want the Bitcoin protocol to attempt to fulfill. Right, so that's when I think, like, if you really want to get into like legitimate criticisms of Bitcoin maximalism, at points it does seem disingenuous, and it gets murky as well. So if you get in the area of privacy, yeah, Bitcoin is handled off chain. Uh, Bitcoin privacy is handled off chain. Mm-hmm. It's not at the protocol level, right? Whereas mm-hmm. something like Monero is, mm-hmm. and then you can get into the debate. Well, well, is it is privacy is privacy achievable by me on Bitcoin? As a you know technical mm-hmm. moron just completely not and that's why I don't mm-hmm. uh, that's why I would I've always said since yeah. for whenever that I would use Monero so you know that's a murky area because it's like you know well I want you know I want on-chain privacy yet there's valid reasons not to do it I mean I don't really want on-chain privacy I think but well, do you see what I mean it gets a bit murky it's like well this is a subjective solution to that problem I mean, again, I think, uh, so privacy is a good example of this. And then I would, the other example I would say is like custodial services, right? So the classic example of this right now is like C5 versus DeFi, yeah. right? So if you look at an institution, um, you know, like the many that have just recently collapsed, a lot of what they're doing, these centralized custodians, is like people are depositing their Bitcoin in these institutions and they're lending them out. And then you have a class of protocols that exist outside of Bitcoin in the broader cryptocurrency space that then reuse different cryptocurrency assets to recreate that service. So again, I think Udi has been really great at making this distinction. It's that you know he, there is this existing service that exists. It exists outside of the Bitcoin protocol. This is now being rebuilt on other protocols, and those protocols and those crypto assets exist as an alternative to the system. And then if you look at it, it says, okay, why are you encouraging one set of trade-offs versus this other set of trade-offs? In both conditions, the risk is the same. Your asset can just go to zero because somebody's holding it and go to nothing. So, and on one side, you have to trust this institution to kind of lend and manage their books, and we've seen that a lot of them are bad at that. But then on the DeFi side, it's like, okay, you have to trust developers. Right? So there's a series of trade-offs. Both can be achieved. But again, like the Bitcoin position is that we've largely supported these custodial, custodial institutions. And we have not supported these, you know, decentralized protocols that are achieving the same thing. So the question, again, and I think this is a legitimate question, is why? Right? Again, if you're going to accept a, a scenario where there are limits to what Bitcoin achieve, can achieve, and then you're going to accept that people are going to build products and services that then provide the service, again, the privacy is just, you know, you can kind of flip this example on the other side, then you have to admit that they're going to continue to exist. But this philosophical debate is what's brilliant. This is kind of what I want out of Bitcoin. I want to have these discussions, these... You know, deep philosophical discussions about what should exist, why it should exist, you know, what is maximalism, what is the goals. But these, these, we seem to be avoiding these. They don't uh, again, I think you're all. talking about like the anti-intellectual sort of nature of Bitcoin maximalism, right? Certain cohorts. 
So not everyone. Because you'd... Well, uh, yeah, I can give an intellectual defense of Bitcoin Maximals one one, but I think that the at the end result, I would also say that one of the things about Bitcoin Maximalism is that it's actually very scalable, and that is something that is good, right? That is a good thing about it, is that you can explain... Bitcoin maximalism to someone who's very young. Look at the little hodler. No, no, I've, I've, what I'm saying is I think, you, yeah, little hodler is amazing. But Little think, hodler is a great example of something where you could explain the Bitcoin worldview to a four-year-old. Yeah. And that is very powerful. It says the fiat system is bad. We're trying to replace it. Bitcoin is good. And then anything else that's happening in cryptocurrency is this, you know, investment worldview, right? So again, like Bitcoin maximalism, the worldview itself is very scalable. And where I would draw criticism of saying, I think the anti-intellectual parts of Bitcoin maximalism are actually positive because I don't know of a reality. And again, this is where I think the crypto agnostic okay. people like really lose me is that uh, not everything can be endlessly intellectualized. So one of the problems with the cryptocurrency movement beyond Bitcoin, the people who are agnostic to cryptocurrencies, it assumes this tremendous intellectualization like of what's going on, right? It assumes me and you can sit and have this argument and we can talk about whether centralized custodians and decentralized custodians, we can talk about the trade-offs. And for the average person, like they just they're not going to interface with that. Yeah. So now we're talking about like what is the ideology that the whole of the cryptocurrency industry has produced that scales. Like, what is the most scalable ideology? On one side, you have the no-coiners. They're saying Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies don't exist. I mean, clearly, that is not a scalable ideology, and it's a diminishing ideology because it doesn't recognize reality, right, uh, we would argue. And then there's the cryptocurrency agnostic worldview, which states that there's going to be all these types of new crypto assets. You're going to be trading them 24-7. You're going to be on Twitter at, like, 2 o'clock in the night managing your portfolio that's, like, constantly in these assets that are being reduced to based, like, you know, split, forked, like, whatever. And you're going to be some sort of nouveau financial investor who's, like, again, constantly managing this complex portfolio of digital assets. And then you have the Bitcoin Maximals worldview that says, buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin, don't lose your keys or trust anything anybody with your keys, oppose the current system, participate in finance and investment responsibly, that that worldview seems scalable. Again, I don't know how to inhabit. So again, like going back to action, it's like you as a human, like you have to choose and to live in one of these worlds. So again, like you, you really have to like get rid of the idea that this is theoretical and it goes back to like Bitcoin existing in perpetuity. If, if Bitcoin exists in perpetuity, it, it impacts the world, right? It continues to exist. So then you have to take some action to recognize it. You can deny it. You can become a no-coiner. And which is very clear you're being financially penalized <laughs> yep. at a rate that's like very clear. Whether you don't realize. You can be cryptocurrency agnostic. You can try to build things that compete, augment, uh, live alongside Bitcoin and try to financially live that life. I would argue that like you're creating a society in which, you know, uh, you're creating, you know, this, this, this environment where someone who is a participant in your worldview has to be involved in a financial infrastructure at such a level or I can't imagine that the average participant would be able to do that. I couldn't live in that world. You know, again, I tried to, to you know, look, I'm an economically coordinated person. I wanted to buy all the stupid, dumb shitcoin uh, DeFi projects when they were cheap. I wanted to kind of get, you know, the money. That was, I, I tried to live in that world. Try to live in that world. And then there's the Bitcoin maximalism view, which again, asks the user to take very simple actions and ask them to buy a very simple narrative you know, and I say, so again, now we're getting a little bit into like worldview competition. Like it is true that these sociologies develop, they have some relationship with technology, but then you have to look at which one of these is scalable. Which one of them could the actual, the greatest number of people live in? Can they, they actually inhabit in their daily lives? The maximalism. 
I think Bitcoin yeah. maximalism offers the most coherent of the worldviews. What about what about if you're a developer and you want to build something on Bitcoin, but it can't be done? Like your example earlier, right. because they won't do the upgrades. But you know there's a need for this tool, and you go well, and I you think, build again, it. Again, that's why Hold I think on. we've created this moral penalties, right? Yeah. But what I'm saying is, and you go and build it out on this other platform. Are you now not a, a Bitcoin maximalist? Are you now a shitcoiner? Because you could be accused of that. Well, this is where I get, I think you get into get like canceled. the, I mean, again, there's a ton of Bitcoin developers who have contributed to other cryptocurrency projects. You can go down the list. Andrew Puesto, Peter Todd, like Brian Bishop. I mean, like almost all of them at some point have contributed to some alternative cryptocurrency. But it was always with this idea of experimenting with technology that we couldn't experiment, we couldn't use in Bitcoin today, and then attempting to bring it back to Bitcoin for the greatest good. So again, you have to then define like a, the action, right? If you are doing something for the benefit of Bitcoin, like then it's it's just demonstrably aligned. Like mm. if your interest is to understand how Monero works, use it advantageously, and bring those learnings to Bitcoin, I would argue you're still being a maximalist because you're still trying to advance Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, and I would agree with that, and I like that. You know, what I don't like are these hard lines which don't rationally think through the actions that somebody has taken. It's just this hard line. Well, but that's why I think the whole idea of creating exclusionary groups at the level is just ridiculous. It's like the idea that you're a Bitcoiner is ridiculous. Like no one should consider themselves a Bitcoiner just because they own Bitcoin. I own a lot of things and I don't consider myself I'm you know, a an active member of that community. You I'm know? A definitely a, and I'm a houser. You know? It's like I drink smoothies occasionally. You're a smoother. You know? I'm a smoother, right? Like I, there's whole, like we have to admit that like Bitcoin is part of the world and that the world is this like diverse place of like many things occurring. But this is where I think the problem has come from <laughs> It, this exclusionary group has been created with this opaque set of rules whereby you can be ejected for reasons where, yeah, which wouldn't Don't be. you think that's a broader social phenomenon? I mean, look at the left-wing sort of world sure. group, the right-wing, you know, sort of in America, there's like the polarization of the camps. Like, and it, again, it metastasizes in like talking about like plastic straws. No, no, like, sure. Look, not, I, I agree with you. But if, if I saw somebody like ejecting somebody from their group and I felt like, I'd be like, look, they're still one of you. They're, they're still helpful. They're still, still doing good. Like, I, I I want more people to be working together against the common enemy. That's all I want. And I think at times, this opaque set of rules creates this defined group that if you cross the line, you're out. And sometimes the problem is, it, 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 you don't, it's like an elastic band. When you're out, you're pinged off. I, I, I mean, again, as someone who like, like existed in the space and took a lot of criticism for a lot of years, uh, you know, you can just take criticism and you you, you can just go about your day. And, of course, you, know, you can. <laughs> like this of is a totally re rational thing for you to do as a human being, and then it's totally okay for you to say like, "Hey, I'm an adventure investor. You know, I wanted to invest this thing. You know, maybe I can be doing more to invest in Bitcoin. Like maybe I am not doing enough, right? Like maybe I." Could have like I had this idea that I like maybe I should have thought about how that relates to Bitcoin or maybe if I think that there are some limits to Bitcoin if I think that Bitcoin should ossify and then I should be therefore allowed to invest in this you know all these other things like as virtue of that maybe I should be public about that maybe that's a viewpoint that I should evangelize for maybe I should participate as an honest actor in the discussion and then advance that if I felt that prerogative. Do you think not being a Bitcoin maximalist is a criticism for some people? They're like, oh, you're not a maxi. Some people see it as a criticism of that person. Like, you should aspire to be one. And if you're not, why not? Because I think if I think I, I you think, can be I think you can be positive with Bitcoin, but not a Bitcoin maximalist, and that's okay. A hundred percent. But I think that 
you know, the people who are just living their lives as people who are participating in Bitcoin, they need some guidance. So again, like you go, you continue to go back to the worldview, which is, okay, what is the reason that you participate in Bitcoin and then you don't participate in the array of exotic like cryptocurrency, like financial service products, like tokens, assets. Uh, and again, like we've applied sort of a moral lens for that, right? And right now, Bitcoin maximalism says that it is good and right to advance Bitcoin as much as possible. And it is good and right to oppose anything that would profit from any short-term inability of Bitcoin to be able to do something uh, or any short-term sort of, you know, uh, profiteering by these services existed, right? So it exists in opposition to those two things. And again, I think it'll continue to be around and it'll continue to be useful unless we have a better answer for that, right? Something else has to fill that void if not Bitcoin maximalism. Yeah. It's weird. I don't even know. If I, are you a Bitcoin maximalist? I, I don't, I'm struggling. I think the really interesting thing that's coming with this is like, it's clear that there's no one definition. Like, I, d I don't think you two have agreed on a definition. Still. No, but I like Rizzo's definition. Now I, I understand I it. Now I understand it. It's because it's, it's both, it's a tighter definition, but also is rational around the decisions that people might make that some yeah, there, people there's, reject. There's a for. couple problems here. It's like, if you, if you create the idea that like being a Bitcoiner or Bitcoin maximalism is a label and that someone can acquire, and then if they acquire it, they can never lose, then it, then it divorces that person from any repercussion. Of no, action. not that, not that. That's right. not what I was saying. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's, there's that one example. And then it's like, then you can sort of recast it and say like, okay, this is directional and aspirational. You know, your friend who's a Bitcoiner, who's just holding Bitcoin, and he's not doing anything else, and he's just like a plumber or like, you know, nine to five, maybe he's a developer somewhere else. Maybe he's doing the most he can for Bitcoin, and then great for him, right? If he's if he's aligned with sort of the general idea here of like, we're trying to remove, move as much of the financial service monetary infrastructure over to the trustless sort of Bitcoin environment. That's the most he can do, the most he wants to do, then that that's great also, right? Like, I think that there's this... Um, you know, myself, it's like I decided to dedicate the most amount of my work and human energy to trying to understand Bitcoin, help people understand it, and then advance that cause. That's the choice that I made. I'm not asking that everybody make that choice. I mean, I chose to spend a significant part of my life on Bitcoin. Right. But I also choose to do other things because I have other interests. Sure. And that's fine. And right. I'm, I'm okay with that. And you want to talk to people who have controversial opinions and have different opinions and then challenge your audience to think differently and yeah. agree that it's something that you think you do very well. Well, I think also that that's the other thing is like sometimes the role, like it's hard to define what a podcaster is because it's part journalism, but it's part media, it's part entertainment. You know, so this is, it's like a, it's like a bunch of things at once. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm interviewing Julian Assange's uh, sister and brother, it's more on the journalistic side because I'm trying to help people see the story and understand mm -hmm. the story. But when I'm doing, say, uh, you know, in American Hoddle, it's more on the entertainment side. Let's fuck around mm -hmm. and have some jokes. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like, this is more on the journalistic side. But if it's on the journalistic side, am I a Bitcoin cheerleader or am I a journalist? Because sometimes they can be in conflict. Because sometimes you have to push and challenge ideas, even if they're wrong. Whereas being a Bitcoin cheerleader as a podcast, it might be better for Bitcoin. Well, I mean, again, I think it goes back to, like, the journalism is, if you are a journalist, then you are someone in a position and you have a platform. So then it's a question of, okay, are you taking the proper time to kind of evaluate the reality of the situation, right? And the reality of the situation is Bitcoin exists and it has existed for 13 years and it continues to go, go up in value and it continues to become more broadly useful. And the reality is, is that there is a cottage industry of other 
you know, for-profit centralized companies and, you know, somewhat opaque distributed financial services that have, that now exist around that. And then you you have to have some stance like on that because it, it objectively exists. So going back to our argument, our you know defining the phenomena, it's like sure these are stars in the sky. They exist. You have to have some opinion of them, or you're. Not, I don't think you're doing your job as a journalist, right? Like and again, this is where I think that a lot of the journalism, my particular criticism over the last year, is that. You know, mainstream financial journalism about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies has, hasn't advanced at all. Yes. You know, the major media companies, I was talking to one, they had interviewed me recently, and they were talking about the crypto state of crypto media. And I was like, look, I mean, you guys come in here during the bull runs, and then you, you know, equate what's going on with, like, Dogecoin and AMC, and you do tremendous, like, con- consumer harm. And there's been no consistent advancement from the major media industry. They don't, they rotate through reporters. They don't let anybody do any good work on it. And again, like, you know, the media industry, you've seen this tremendous failure to recognize the reality at hand, which is that Bitcoin exists, it will continue to exist, people will continue to profiteer and racketeer by creating all these sort of, you know, companies and protocols around it. And, you know, it's been their failure to recognize and adopt any consistent stance to that reality beyond just, again, like, equating it with the sort of investment fanfare around AMC and Robinhood and this this kind of stuff that is, has done legitimate consumer harm. <laughs> like, yeah, legitimate. Legitimate. And again, I think that, you know, there's a... And even worse, by the way, I've, I've literally reached out to some of these journalists and said, listen, I can provide you the truth and the facts that you're wrong. And in fairness, we had uh, The Economist mm-hmm. allowed us write, write a rebuttal, mm. and that was fair play. The Guardian... The, bear with me. Uh, the Financial Times, we got close, but they tried to edit our article too much. And then the Guardian guy just mocked us online, refused mm. to end, in, in, engage with the idea that he might be wrong. He might be disseminating false information. Well, I think this is an area where I'm increasingly interested. If you're talking about like, okay, where are the limits of Bitcoin maximalism? And like, where then can we actually participate and work with people who are outside of that bubble, right? And I think like one of the things that there should be an emerging commonality around is consumer harm. Like, you know, again, if you're you know, say what you will about any of the sort of like DeFi projects that spun up. They're they're not the greater evil here. The greater evil here is the safe moons and like sort of the consistent stuff that's just like completely complete garbage. And the, you know, general cryptocurrency industry that continues to equate all these things and market them as essentially the same products. So again, you know, we have to remember, I think, like, you know, with this bear market, like, okay, well, what can we achieve? You know, Bitcoin maximalism is aspirational. It's going to take us many, many years, many, many decades to realize the full potential of Bitcoin. And it's very likely that products and services that exist outside of Bitcoin will continue to find reach and product market fit. And then, you know, we'll have to then potentially, you know, try to migrate them. But then there's this still this huge, 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 huge problem of consumer harm. And who's addressing that? I think the problem with it is like at the end of the day, like the cryptocurrency agnostics and the Bitcoin maximalists, like we don't really agree. You know, we have a fundamental disagreement, and that disagreement allows this whole like cloud of you know uh, consumer harm and like false marketing to kind of continue to exist. And I think um, I'm interested to see like whether anyone will come to the table on that. One final question, but it's quite a big one. Um, What would you recommend? And you might not want to do this, but what would you recommend Bitcoin maximalists do with regards to the ownership of Bitcoin maximalism? And also the external critics on Bitcoin maximalism do with their criticism of it. What would people do if they're Bitcoin maximalists? Hmm. How do they approve Bitcoin maximalism? How does Bitcoin maximalism become more effective? 
Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think we have to be a bit clearer about like aspirationally what Bitcoin is trying to achieve and then what we think is possible of achieving and then just have like a tighter discussion around that. So I think that, you know, whenever we do seem to have a conversation about trying to improve Bitcoin, this was true around like OpCTV or, you know, I think it's probably the true of drive change now. There's this tremendous opacity around like what is happening in Bitcoin development culture and like what the attitudes of what is achievable is. And I think, again, that just creates this like tremendous gap of like, you know, I don't think people understand what is rational or possible and on what time frames. What I would love to see is like, I, you know, I used to think the Scaling Bitcoin Conference series was fantastic because I think it gave you like a snapshot of like the state of the art and what was happening. And I think. We've lost that a bit, right? It has become. Was that Paul saying then? The previous, yeah, yeah, Paul was yeah. We've really lost like an understanding of like what the current, um, you know, state of the art is, and like what's currently being achieved, what's possible to achieve. And again, I think that, you know, it's fine to have those conversations and then decide that we're not going to make any improvements to Bitcoin. Uh, but then I think a lot of people don't understand how to engage in those conversations at all. It's like just very hard to understand, like. I think one of the reasons that Bitcoin maximalism has become such an antagonistic culture is that it's hard to participate in it in any other way, right? So if you want to become a Bitcoiner, you know, what are you given to do, right? Um, and a lot of it is like social media based, unfortunately, right? But we haven't we haven't really provided a good path for those people to be productive. And again, it takes like I struggled for many years just like being very confused about what was going on in Bitcoin, like having absolutely no you know, real conception of what was what. And I think other than just like going through the human time of like, you know, actually doing your own research and then like, you know, trying to figure it out and developing your own intellectual stance, you know, it doesn't work. And again, that's why I said like, you know, there's something to be said about the current version of Bitcoin maximalism. <laughs> it's just like very simplistic, right? It works and it, we need the stuff to be scalable, right? So I think it's, um, I would say like one, you know, we need to create a more permissive environment for like advancing Bitcoin, right? And allow people to kind of come into that conversation and then and then move that forward. Two, I think we need to respect sort of the anti-intellectual Bitcoin maximalism. Because again, I think you cannot, the whole entirety of the world will not participate in the functioning of the Bitcoin network. They will not participate in these conversations. They need some worldview to adopt that is easy for them to do. And it seems like the current Bitcoin maximalism worldview, again, we talked about a little hodler, you can explain it to a four-year-old, is highly scalable. Bitcoin is good, fiat is bad. Whatever is going on in cryptocurrency is either a scam, uninteresting, an exotic investment, whatever. Preserve that worldview. Maybe we can do both those things. I don't know. And then people who are against Bitcoin maximalism, again, I would say, like, understand what we're trying to achieve. Because, again, if you're going to continue attacking Bitcoin maximalism, but you're offering no real solution to their underlying problems, like, the problem that Bitcoin maximalism is trying to solve is it's trying to get people to provide their human action to furthering Bitcoin and it's trying to discourage them from building things where their financial incentives would be greater to do that elsewhere. And as long as you continue to refuse to acknowledge that that, that is the aspiration, then you ref refuse to understand how that could potentially be accomplished in other ways. I don't know how it could be accomplished in other ways, but I think it's important to understand that those people think that they're accomplishing something. They think that they're doing good. And I think a lot of the negativity recently has really been around Again, like trying to reject the entirety of that view. Like you have to understand that this person thinks they're doing good. They think they are participating. They think they're helping. And as long as they think they're helping and there's a good argument that they are right, they will continue to act that way. Are you a Bitcoin maximalist? I aspire to be someone who devotes the most of my time to Bitcoin and understanding it and furthering the education process around that. And I've tried to devote as much of my time to it as I can. That's been really useful. Um, 
because I mean, look, it's, it, this is still your definition, and other people have different definitions, but it's one that I like and I can get behind. It's well, also, again, I would say that people like I've written three articles about it, and I think you have to eventually come to terms with some. I get the, the the point right now is like right now there there's there's been no definition, and you're just like cobbling a bunch of stuff together, and it's just like you know you can argue about bad behavior all you want, but again, like why are people adopting these ideologies? Why are they adopting these behaviors? If you're not talking about what they're doing, what they're trying to do, then you're just not. Having a good argument. No, what I'm, what I was gonna, what I was trying to get to is that I'm saying what you've given me is like a, like a benchmark or a set of principles where I can understand what people are arguing over. So when there's a right. disagreement, I can go, I, and when they're at cross purposes, right. I can see, I can see where they're at cross purposes now, and I can see right. what they're, and then I can also, I'll give you an example. I think Paul Stortz is a Bitcoin maximalist. Yeah, I, I agree. Paul Stortz is someone, and I think anybody in the developer community will tell you, even if they don't want to do drive chains, that they respect. Paul Stortz, because Paul, Paul Stortz is, is is trying to further Bitcoin as a technology. Well, that's why we had him on the show to right. discuss it. He's trying to further Bitcoin as a technology in ways that we might not be comfortable with. That, to be honest, we might never do, and that it would take a whole show to like talk about like kind of the pros and cons and trade offs. But he's someone who is aspirationally aligned to our goals, and even though he's approaching them differently in an iconoclastic way, that is aligned with Bitcoin. It, it helps me, though, with trying to have a benchmark of personal decisions. Like with this show, I always want to help further Bitcoin. But sometimes I th want to do it by doing, th I do things maybe or have guests on the people like, why are you doing that? Because I want to challenge ideas. But I'll give you a great example. Recently, we just had this, I've talked about it a couple of times, but this Jason Meyer, guy reached out to me, like 30 mm. Twitter followers. He's writing a book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin. Mm. And it's essentially a book we're dealing with leftist FUD. He's a progressive. Mm -hmm. um, he's got no track record in Bitcoin. Um, he's a teacher. But uh, I, uh, I like the idea. I think the book's needed. I think mm -hmm. it's desperately needed. And uh, I would say I'm also in the same camp of thinking that there's been a tremendous amount of work done to adopt or translate Bitcoin's aspirations to the right-leaning lifestyle and that there needs to be more work to counterbalance that. Yeah. So what happens is I tweet about it. And some of the comments are very much like leftist ideology doesn't align with Bitcoin uh, and just all this kind of criticism of it. But the thing I think about is that if you are from the right, you should want this book to be created. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, this, you should want this book created more than books mm -hmm. uh, that cover your own ideology because what you have here is you have a somebody who's from the left who wants to talk to people on the left who've basically been spoon-fed bullshit from left uh -huh. media or or people like Senator Warren, and they're actually going to get a book of proper, decent, good education about Bitcoin and why it isn't, why the energy stuff is FUD, you know, uh -huh. all this bullshit. So you should support yeah, that. Yeah, like if your intent of supporting Bitcoin is to advance the Republican Party, you're not a Bitcoiner. And you should get the fuck out. And if, again, if you're here to advance the Democratic Party, the same thing. It's like get the fuck out. So where where, do, where does it where's the role within politics? Is it to have po politicians cross the aisle? Is that advancing Bitcoin? Well, again, I think a little bit like maybe I'll underscore that like a little bit because it was maybe a harsh statement. So I would just say like um, if your intent, if the reason that you're adopting Bitcoin and you're promoting Bitcoin is to further the interests of a certain party or ideology over Bitcoin, yes, then your actions are not aligned with Bitcoin. Yes. You're actually trying to create a political environment in which the success of Bitcoin continues to benefit one party at the expense of the other, yeah. and then entrenches Bitcoin's association with those ideologies, perhaps in a way that limits its potential. 
So maybe to you know underscore my you know uh, my tweet there <laughs> uh, of you know th- th- again it's like if your intent and again this goes to anything right and I think this is why the action like like um, thing makes sense like if your intent is to like you know kind of hijack Bitcoin to like achieve some other goal or to like use it for some other means like you are not a Bitcoin maximalist you're not doing something that's good for Bitcoin. I, I also don't mind the idea is like it being an aspirational thing. Say so look like you said. I'm doing, yeah. I'm working towards it. I just dedicate a lot of my time to it. You weren't willing to say yes, you are, but it's an aspirational thing. It's like I'm working towards. But I, it. like again, I think that people are like obsessed with this idea, like some sort of fashion choice that they can become a Bitcoiner, and it's like that's that that Bitcoin maximus. Uh, yeah, I mean, but again, even that's a, like a fashion choice for some people. I mean, again, I think we're talking about a broader phenomenon in which people. You know, again, like, and this is why we go back to like the woke left or the right, where it's like people's social media identities are like very shaped by these sort of like polit- political ideologies. And I would just caution of, I would caution us grouping that into what is happening with Bitcoin, because like going back to the example I used before, it's like, yes, there is a sociology around Bitcoin, but that sociology has to have some relationship to a technology. It does not purely exist, right? In the same way that like being someone who's on the woke left, it's like. That political ideology—it's—it's it's a political ideology. Yeah. It—it—it it, it is relational to some form of governance or ability of governance, right? Everything—everything everything's sort of relational. So Bitcoin is not—it's influenced by that, but it's—it's it's not the same thing. Yeah. These are somewhat similar phenomena, but they're not really the same. It's the same with the Dogecoin and GME thing. Mm-hmm. Is our cryptocurrency investors—do they have some behavioral similarities to GameStop and AMC? Sure, but at the end of the end of the day, GameStop and AMC are stocks like that somebody else owns on an exchange. Like there, there's nothing there's nothing new happening here. Within Bitcoin, there is a technology that was developed <laughs> that is an invention that previously did not exist. Mm. The sociology re- exists in relation to the technology, which is the new thing. And then therefore the question I think is like how correct is it? That's what we're litigating. That's the fight over Bitcoin maximalism as well. Well, it's definitely giving me a lot to think about. Um, I found it. It's one of these ones where I don't ever listen back to my shows, but I feel like I'm going to have to listen back to this because there's things I just want to get back in my mind because I think I think you you're, it's clear in your mind what it is, but it's not clear in a lot of other people's mind. It wasn't clear in my mind. I think people have just they've clouded the issue with like an immense amount of like very pointless debate. Yeah, um, that's why I agree. <laughs> I completely agree. And it's, you know, I, I think I wrote the piece to sort of just say like, Look, Bitcoin maximalism exists. It exists to serve these goals, and these goals unite this group. If your attempt is to reject it or subvert it or to argue against it, argue against this set of things. Because whatever people are talking about or tweeting about or whatever, people tweet a ton of stupid shit about a lot of stuff. This is the aspiration. This is the core aspiration. If you think that we can achieve these things in some other way, this is the claim of a lot of the recent critics. If you think that we can achieve an environment in which people will build and advance the Bitcoin without enacting a moral penalty against people who are against that, then propose something. <laughs> Tell us what the alternative is. What is the alternative, right? Actually advance a proposal by trying to understand who you're, who you're fighting against. And my, again, my point is that Bitcoin maximalism exists to solve a problem. The market has adopted the ideology because it is useful. And if your attempt is to yell at it or shout at it and make it go away, like because people make you upset on Twitter, then I don't know. You're not going to get very far, right? All right, man. Well, listen, do you want to send anyone to anywhere? The article? Yeah, sure. Twitter? 
Pete Rizzo, uh, Bitcoin historian on Twitter, uh, uh, Forbes, you can read my writing, and Bitcoin Magazine. We will put it all in the show notes. Thank you, man. I think next time we hang out, we won't talk about maximalism. I think we'll have to flip the script on another, yeah, the on script. another subject. Do something else, yeah. man. All right, dude. Thank you for this. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to reach out to me, please do get in touch. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to all messages, but you can also go and check out my Telegram group. There's a bunch of people in there always talk about Bitcoin. All right. I will see you all very, very soon.